second roundtable that we have had on EU foreign policy after Lisbon, and it is on the role of parliaments in EU foreign policy making. There are, we have four uh, speakers uh, this evening, and I've asked them to consider questions including, can national parliaments play an important role in EU foreign policy? How influential is the European Parliament in EU foreign policy making? And what difference has the, Na the Lisbon Treaty made uh, to their role at all? The speakers uh, tonight uh, will each spend about 10 minutes initially discussing their particular views on those uh, questions. Uh, the first one is going to be Lord Teverson. Uh, Te Lord Teverson was in the European Parliament uh, from 1994 to 1999, um, representing Cornwall and West Plymouth. He was a Lib Dem. He still is uh, a Lib uh, Dem. Um, and, but he is now in the House of Lords. He's been in the House of Lords for 2006. Uh, and and is the chair of the House of Lords EU Select Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence. C, I think it's, is it, there's, there's a letter after it, which I've never quite understood myself. But uh, anyway, he is the, the chair of the House of Lords Select Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence. Second speaker is Mike Gapes, MP, who represents Ilford South. He's a Labour uh, MP. He uh, has been, I think he was telling us, in the uh, Defense uh, Committee for four years, Defense Select Committee for four years, and on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee for 11 uh, years. And he chaired uh, the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee uh, from 2005 to 2010. The third speaker is Brendan Donnelly, who's currently director of the Federal Trust, but he too was an MEP between 1994 and 1999, and so can give us a view also uh, on uh, the European Parliament's perspective on all of this. Final speaker will be Professor Wolfgang Wagner, who is at the University of Amsterdam and who has written quite extensively on the role of parliaments in uh, foreign policy making and defense uh, policy making, uh, and is, has run several large research projects uh, on the topic. So he can give us a good overview, I think, in general, of the role of parliaments in foreign policy making in Europe today. I'll hand this over to Lord Teverson, first of all. Um, what I've asked them to do, we're having a podcast. This is being podcast this evening. Uh, so each will speak for 10 minutes in front of this microphone, <laughs> simply so that we can make sure that it gets on the podcast. Uh, but then when we open it up for debate, we'll just, we'll all remain there and have a much more open uh, discussion. Anyway, Lord Teverson, thank okay. you very much for coming. Well, thank you very much for inviting me about this uh, interesting uh, subject. And there's several aspects of it that we've been asked to talk about, and we, but to specialise ourselves in maybe one or two of them. I'm going to particularly talk about the way in which national parliaments, and obviously particularly looking at the, the UK Parliament, is able, or the House of Lords, Mike Gapes uh, will of course talk about the House of Commons, can uh, we manage to somehow keep European uh, foreign policy and security policy somehow in check, accountable. Talking about uh, closing a democratic deficit is always a little bit difficult when you're a member of the House of Lords because democracy doesn't always come into it too much. But uh, that's, for the, that's, for, that's for the future. I think one of the things uh, in, in terms of context that one should remember when trying to say, well, how do we make 
European level foreign policy accountable to Parliament is that we should remember that it's actually pretty difficult even to keep national foreign policy accountable to Parliament. Particularly in the UK, we have uh, a tradition, um, as I suppose you would see in this unwritten constitution, that, that a lot of foreign policy, whether it's treaty making, whether it's uh, uh, declaring war, little sort of things like that, actually, technically, Parliament never had to be consulted on. Um, the Prime Minister would go off and do it in the name of the Head of State, the Sovereign, the Queen, the King, whatever. And so, actually, keeping foreign policy is something that governments, in many ways, like to keep to themselves as much as they, as much as they can. The legislative process, clearly outside, unless you wanted to put treaties through, as, as you do in the European Parliament, then they have to be, um, uh, then that's an area where you could have a legislative aspect, but otherwise you're really only bringing government to account through um, inquiring of ministers and all of that sort of, uh, that sort of side. Now that, some of that has changed and uh, Mike will know better than I, I think the, in the Iraq war then Parliament was uh, consulted, the House of Commons, not the House of Lords as I understand it, but that, some of that has changed. So what about the, if that's difficult at a national level, how the heck do we do it at a European level? Well, the Select Committee I chair, it has the responsibility of looking at um, decisions, um, directives, we don't get many directives in the foreign affairs, in the development area we do, uh, but around foreign affairs, defence and uh, development policy. And of course, um, some of the, the EU's broader foreign policy is communitaire to some degree. Development policy is a particularly important instrument of the European Union, uh, one of the uh, uh, largest uh, aid uh, uh, contributors uh, uh, globally. Uh, obviously, foreign trade, uh, which is uh, uniquely uh, and, and completely a community um, um, issue and, and competence is one of the ones where probably uh, Europe has greatest effect globally in terms of uh, ex uh, extraterritorial effectively setting of standards because of our half a billion people uh, market. But when it comes to core foreign affairs, then I'll let, let me talk a little bit about how it happens uh, at, at my end of, uh, of, 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 of Parliament, some of the problems that, that we have over that, and then look to see maybe what we can do to, to change some of that. First of all, um, anything that is a decision, a directive, a regulation, uh, a policy paper that has to be decided upon, is, uh, comes to us as uh, the House of Lords and, and to my select committee, so we have to scrutinise it and uh, we say whether we clear the document, which means that we approve it effectively, or whether we decide not to uh, approve it. And technically, a minister or the uh, Secretary of State uh, cannot or should not, uh, sorry, should not uh, uh, or tries not to uh, agree anything in the Council of Ministers, and this is just the Council of Ministers relationship because it's the intergovernmental uh, uh, part of the EU, unless we have had the opportunity to clear a document and to, uh, and to um, comment uh, on it. And to do that, uh, what my committee has done more and more is we tend to bring in the uh, Foreign Office officials, sometimes the Minister, uh, last week when we were considering whether Serbia should become a candidate country uh, of, the, of the European Union and whether the uh, agreement should go ahead for Croatia. 
Then we brought in uh, David Liddington, the Europe Minister, to go through with him in some detail what this really meant because the, the government's policy on it to us wasn't absolutely clear as what would be required from Serbia before it actually got candidate status. So we're able uh, to do that. We're able to write to ministers to ask them more about uh, the intentions of, uh, of what the government is. But when I talk about that, clearly what I'm talking to is the British government and the British ministers. I'm not talking directly to uh, the External Action Service, uh, the High Representative, or the Commission, maybe it's, uh, when it's an enlargement issue, uh, and, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's partly a community process. So is that, does that process really make sure that uh, there is accountability from Parliament in terms of the decisions that the British Government will make within the Council of Ministers. Well, I have to give um, the past Government and present Government some due in that there is a great, great reluctance to agree something in Council until it has been cleared by Parliament. And, uh, and they will usually wait for that uh, uh, to happen. Sometimes decisions are actually postponed. If they're important decisions, then clearly as Parliament we work hard to make sure we make the decisions uh, in time, which was uh, true around Serbia in that we, we had to, there, was, there was a very clear timetable when the Council of Ministers would make, uh, or, or the European Council on other issues, when it, would, uh, when it would make decisions. But clearly there are a number of difficulties about this. One is, as Parliament, we can't say, well, actually, um, uh, on this uh, particular um, decision, uh, then we uh, agree with most of it, but paragraph 9, clause 2, uh, we want that bit changed. It's an all or nothing. Uh, we can say yes or no. And even if we say no, we're not going to clear this document or we don't like it, then at the end of the day, the government has... Uh, done what it needs to do, like in the European Parliament in the old days uh, before uh, most things went through uh, the normal legislative process. You consult, you listen, and you ignore. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's how uh, politics and government uh, can, tend to, uh, can tend to work. So at the end of the day, uh, we can not clear something and we can cause that to, to be a statistic in terms of uh, the government uh, having decided something without our approval, but at the end of the day, Government governs and you have to do that. The other particular difficult area in terms of foreign affairs particularly is the pace at which they work. If you are looking at other more um, the, uh, uh, communitaire areas, then usually uh, you have a whole legislative process to go through in terms of a directive or a regulation. And so you can get involved over a period of time. You know these things are going to turn up and you can work your way through it. Give your opinion at different stages of uh, the legislative process uh, if, you're, if, if it's not agreed at uh, first reading in, in the European Parliament and then you can and go through and do it in that way. In foreign affairs, it, whether it's, uh, it tends to be um, uh, sanctions on Iran and Syria that we've had a lot of recently, then uh, they have to be done quickly. If they involve individuals, they have to be Clearly, it doesn't make sense to consult because while uh, you're consulting, uh, the people have moved the money to the other side of the world or to the different bank accounts or whatever. So all of that area is quite difficult to deal with. And in many other of the in foreign affairs areas, then uh, there is a, a momentum that needs to be met. And so almost you have to be careful that you're not at a complete fait accompli by the time as Parliament you get in, involved in. So what do we do? That's the national area. At the international area, uh, in terms of parliaments coming together, 
then Mike and me, uh, I don't, are you going to talk a bit about this, Mike? So I won't talk about this uh, very much. I'll, I'll leave that for Mike to talk about. But we do all get together as parliamentarians uh, once every presidency, usually where the presidency takes place. So this, this half of year we've been in, in Poland. And as foreign affairs chairs of committees for each chamber of each national parliament, we get together and we often uh, will hear from the, the high representative about what they're doing. I'll let Mike explain all of that because it, that's even more important now the Western European Assembly, uh, Parliamentary Assembly, doesn't uh, exist and we're trying to find a way forward in that, which I won't go into and I'll leave to Mike. But does that really call uh, the uh, CSDP to, to, or uh, sorry, CFSP here in this case, to account? Not really, because that's not a decision-making body. It's very, um, it's, uh, and we don't go there as chairs with mandates. Uh, from our committees. And yet the European Parliament, uh, which I'm a, a great fan, um, but has its role, uh, it obviously, because the uh, High Representative is in the Parliament, uh, before Parliament, in her uh, Vice President of the Commission role, or in uh, a High Representative role, but in front of the Foreign equivalent of the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee in Parliament, then just because they have more contact, and that's within a much more standard parliamentary session, then my feeling would be that the European Parliament is able, whether it's, uh, even though uh, foreign affairs remains primarily uh, intergovernmental, then they will be able to call her much more to account than us as national parliaments, even collectively. So is there a democratic deficit? There is, I would say that's at national level as well. But as a member of the House of Lords, I never talk about democratic deficits. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you. Um, can I, first of all, uh, welcome the opportunity to come and talk about these issues? Because, sadly, as a member of the House of Commons, it's very rare you get the chance to uh, get out, and it's also even rarer to get out to talk about important issues relating to Europe, rather than the obsessions that some members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords have about other things to do with Europe. But I'm not here to talk about that today. Um, perhaps we'll get that in the questions. Um, first of all, to say there are, within our national parliaments within the European Union, very different systems in, in different countries. Partly that's a reflection of history, partly it's a reflection on whether it is a, a parliamentary system or a presidential system, partly it is a reflection on whether there are coalition governments permanently or whether there is a, normally a majority and a minority. So the Nordic countries, the Scandinavians, have developed much more um, pre-decision process within their parliaments uh, than, than we have in the British tradition that Robin has referred to. But things have changed a bit. Um, on foreign policy, um, it is now inconceivable that the British government can get involved in major military action without the prior consent of the House of Commons. And it's not just because of what happened in 2003 where Parliament actually voted by majority over 400 for the military action uh, in Iraq, but also the recent decisions relating to the no-fly zone and uh, Libya were very much on the basis of broad parliamentary support and more than 500 members of Parliament voting for that action. 
And so I, I think it's important to put that in the context. In the Falklands and in previous conflicts, that was not the case. Parliament met after the dispatch of the task force in 1982 and a special session on a Saturday morning, but the task force had already set sail. I also think things have changed because of the Lisbon Treaty. Um, the Lisbon Treaty uh, is something which was a long time in the gestation, but it gave us um, the opportunity uh, within our parliamentary processes to study it in some detail. And when I chaired the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in 2008, we actually published a, a detailed report on the foreign policy aspects of the Lisbon Treaty. And uh, two weeks ago, we had uh, the uh, Commissioner, UK Commissioner and High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, Cathy Ashton, came before us to give evidence to our select committee in this new parliament. And this was the first time that she, in her role as the High Representative, had come before uh, our parliament in that role in the House of Commons. She'd previously uh, spoken to uh, House of Commons when she was a, a commissioner uh, dealing with uh, transport policy, and she, um, she was not, uh, however, in the Commons uh, in that role um, dealing with the foreign policy aspects. And there's a very interesting evidence session, you can study it, it's on the website, where we go into some detail, not just on the current foreign policy issues, but also on how the External Action Service has been established, how it's developing, and what its role is for the future. And that was on the 21st of November. And one of the questions that we raised in our report initially was, our prediction that she was going to, he or she, whoever became that holder of that post, would be given an impossible job. Bringing together, in effect, three jobs into one. And when we questioned Cathy about this, she didn't say that it was an impossible job, but she certainly did admit to us the fact that she had been in 240 days in the last year where she'd actually been travelling by air from one country to another. And that indicates the complexities. When she was early in her post, I remember it well, we had a meeting uh, of the organisation which uh, Robin referred to, the, the, the chairs of the foreign affairs committees in the EU countries, we call it COFAC, it's the Committee of Foreign Affairs Chairs. Conference of Foreign Affairs Committee Chairs, COFAC, and that body was meeting in Spain, and we had uh, the situation whereby the Commissioner, Cathy, had been in Moscow meeting with the Russians. She'd then flown to the inauguration of the President in Ukraine, and then flew from, from Kiev to Madrid to meet at a dinner and answer questions, a working dinner that evening with members of the parliaments of all the EU countries. That was in one day. And she was criticised in the press in France that week because she had failed to attend an informal meeting of EU defence ministers that was also taking place on the same day. And we took the view as parliamentarians she got her priorities absolutely right.
because she came and listened and talked and answered questions with the accountable democratic parliamentarians. And that was a very important signal that she was serious about trying to engage with us. And her predecessor, to be fair, Javier Solana, in the previous pre-Lisbon era, also came to those meetings regularly, engaged with us, and the rotating presidency, as we had every six months, there was always an opportunity to engage, to question uh, about these matters. But as Robin said, on a day-to-day -day basis, that isn't necessarily going to provide us with the flexibility or the speed. And there is a tension between those in the European Parliament who have an aspiration for some kind of foreign policy oversight role, and those of us in national parliaments who have to vote, vote which the members of the European Parliament don't, on the issues of deployment of forces, imposition of sanctions, uh, enforcement of embargoes and uh, international regimes, which are carried by the legislators in the national parliaments, not by the European Parliament. And, and the aspirations of some in the European Parliament for a different role. And there is therefore a big debate going on, and it's been going on for more than a year, in fact two years. Uh, it started when I was chair of the committee, but it's been uh, carried on into this Parliament, about what should be the successor body once the Western European Union was abolished, the various governments decided at the end of 2009 no longer to fund the WEU, and then the subsequent decision that its assembly would cease to exist, the organisation ceased to exist, but the assembly carried on and had aspirations to carry on um, uh, in, in, a, in a disembodied way, but they, they, that was, came to an end in the summer of this year. And subsequently, and prior to it, there was discussion about how we have a parliamentary body which is able to deal with defence and foreign policy and security issues. Now, there are people in the European Parliament who thought, it's the European Parliament and we'll have, maybe we'll invite national parliamentarians to come along to the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament. I've been to those kind of events. <laughs> And frankly, um, when uh, national parliamentarians representing 95% of the public opinion in their country have to listen to a speech from a party that gets 3% in a particular EU country denouncing them, um, it, it actually uh, is, uh, uh, is, is not a very comfortable experience. And I, 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 I therefore um, feel that when we come to an agreement about the new mechanism, we have to reflect the real balance between the national parliaments as well as the European Parliament. So there have been various issues and proposals. It's not yet finally resolved, but we had discussions in our meeting in Warsaw in September that Robin and I were both at, uh, because I was there to substitute for my chairman who couldn't go, so I was asked to attend. Um, and there is hope that we're going to get an agreed position under the Danish presidency in the first few months of next year which will establish a new body. The national parliamentarians overwhelmingly wish that body to operate on a basis similar to the COFAC or COSAC arrangement for the scrutiny committees that we have established over recent years. 
which it would be a consensual-based organisation, a body which worked on an informal basis and which would act by a rotation of chair and wouldn't have a permanent secretariat. There are people in the European Parliament who want a permanent secretariat based in Brussels and a much more structured, formalised body. And there is a tension between those two approaches, but I think it will be resolved. There is also a, a disagreement about numbers, how many members of each national parliament should there be. We're talking about 27 member states plus uh, the countries who have uh, aspiration to join the European Union in one form or another, plus countries which we have had long association with, and there are complications here because there are two NATO countries, Iceland and Norway, which um, have had a relationship with the WEU Assembly in the past, which need to be taken into consideration. There's the question of Turkey's position um, as well, which uh, was much stronger with regard to the WEU um, than, than, than is potentially available. And then you have to look at Albania, and there, there, are, there are other complications. But the essence of this should be there should be national delegations with, with full members, there should be some forms of observer status, and in addition there will be a component part of members of the European Parliament. That, and that this body will be established and will provide an ongoing form of accountability and scrutiny and questioning of the European Union uh, processes. Linked to this, there are other mechanisms and other ways that we can do things and I do think that as we develop the European neighbourhood policy, as we develop uh, initiatives towards the Middle East and North Africa, as we develop the Eastern Partnership, there will be needs to look at some of those issues in the future, in, in perhaps on a sub-EU regional basis. And the final point I'd make is we need also to be aware, we need to feed back this information to our national parliaments. Now, the UK Parliament does not do European scrutiny well. We have committees in the Commons, we have committees in the Lords, but we don't have a real engagement of more than a minority of members in the detail of what is going on. We have a number of people who have an obsession about all things European, but they are not necessarily the people who are involved in the foreign policy aspects and the detail. And we did have, for example, a debate um, called by the Backbench Business Committee on the 24th of October about Europe. But that was all about whether or not we should have a referendum uh, with regard to our future membership of the EU and the whole issue of treaty change. There has been almost no discussion, apart from a few of us, about the issues related to the subject of this evening's meeting, uh, except for a debate which we had in March, where committees in the Commons and the Lords came together, the Defence Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee and the International Development Committee in the Commons, together with the uh, the committee uh, which uh, Robin uh, represents, uh, um, and a, a joint position was worked out between all parties, 
and all both houses and the different committees, which was then agreed by a vote of 104 to 4 in the House of Commons, broadly in the line which I've just described about informal, no permanent secretariat, uh, European cooperation. There are some people who wish to go beyond that, and uh, that was a, potentially a, a uh, uh, an issue of some contention, but overwhelmingly that is the view that's reflected within the British Parliament. We believe that issues relating to foreign policy and defence policy are principally intergovernmental, not communitaire, that the Lisbon Treaty says that national parliaments should play the lead role in working to bring about this cooperation, and therefore the European Parliament should be involved, but it should be in a place where it is not dominant, and it is not even equal in terms of its numbers, but it has a role, and we use their knowledge, their expertise, but we are very clear that we wish to go forward on a cooperative basis, and not one where we are kind of, as national parliamentarians, just an adjunct to the European Parliament. I think I'll conclude it there. Great, thank you very much. Thanks very much, and thanks to Karen for the kind introduction. It was a kinder introduction than one I had recently in America when I was told, this is Mr. Brendan P. Donnelly from London, England. Um, he sent me a CV, but unfortunately I've lost it. <laughs> Never mind. If, he, if he's any good, let's hear him. If he's no good, let's get it over with. So let's hope it's going to be the, the first of those rather, rather than the second. Um, I want essentially to say two things. Uh, one, that there isn't a democratic deficit um, as far as the common foreign and security policy is concerned, because unfortunately Mike's right. It is an intergovernmental arrangement, uh, and therefore the question of whether the European Parliament can or cannot fill the democratic deficit is an OTO's one. It's a redundant one. Personally, I very much regret that. I think I would be in favour of having a proper European foreign policy, but we don't have it, and therefore there is no real opportunity for the European Parliament to play the role that it can play in other areas of European legislation and policy. And the second thing I want to say is that, that I don't believe there's any chance um, that parliaments, national parliaments, corporately can exercise any role of holding to account over anything that might pass for European foreign policy. Uh, and I stress that I'm talking about them corporately, not about the role of individual parliaments vis-a-vis -vis their national governments. Um, perhaps in order to, to, to explain the first um, of those contentions, I really need to go back to the Maastricht Treaty and um, look at three elements of it which have developed very differently over the past um, 20 years. I want to talk about justice and home affairs, I want to talk about the euro, and then I want to talk about common foreign and security policy. Because I think that there are some intellectual and political questions that we need to have put to ourselves about what we mean by a democratic deficit at the European level, and specifically I'm talking at the European level. Um, in the justice and home affairs um, pillar, as it was then called, uh, it was originally envisaged in the uh, Maastricht Treaty uh, as being uh, an intergovernmental arrangement. I must say it always seemed to me unlikely that that arrangement could continue because justice and home affairs, internal security, is so much linked in 
with the internal market, with free movement, movement of goods and services. Um, but if you have the community system, which obviously you do for the single market, uh, it seemed to me pretty inevitable um, that in not too distant future, um, the elements of internal security would very largely be um, communitarized as well. And that's indeed what's happened. There are substantial opt-outs for the British, for the Danes, for the, for the, for the Irish. Um, but essentially, that pillar has become uh, a, a European community pillar. And if you believe uh, that democratic accountability needs to take place at the European level and can take place at the European level, then you will ask yourself, how is that happening under the Justice and Home Affairs pillar? And the answer to that is that national parliaments attempt, with more or less success, to hold their national governments to account. And the European Parliament is the democratic equivalent at the European level of what national parliaments do at the national level. And I do want to stress that I see these as being two, two different levels. Once you have the um, European legislation through the communitarization of the Justice and Home Affairs pillar, then it's inevitable, it seems to me, that the only real way of exercising accountability at the European level is the European Parliament. Now, there are people who deny that that will ever be possible, and, and that's a, a perfectly defensible point of view. But if you take the view that the European Union, in something like its present form, has a democratic future, then obviously the European Parliament has got to be at the centre of it in areas like justice and home affairs. Then I come to, on to the Euro. Now the Euro was set up in a rather strange and um, anomalous fashion under the Maastricht Treaty with a highly communitaire, a highly centralised, a highly federalist institution, if you like, in the ECB, which was supposed not to be subject to political accountability. And at the as the, the alternative at the other end of the scale, you had enormous decentralization of economic policy being carried out within the, within the Eurozone. And that's turned out to be an unworkable system in times of crisis. And what is very clear is that for the Eurozone, there will be, in the foreseeable future, a much greater centralization or shared restraint, or whatever you like to call it, um, of macroeconomic policy. And there are people who very much worry about that. There are people who say that's undemocratic. And in one sense it is undemocratic, in the sense that if you have an, uh, an agreement between 17 countries, 20 countries, 27 countries, however many they are, uh, that they will reciprocally give each other rights over their own budgets, then that system can't be democratically accountable simply at the national level. You have to accept that it's either at the European level that that happens, or it can't happen at all. And there are people, once again, who perfectly consistently say it will never be possible for the European Parliament to be able to exercise that role of being the vector of democratic accountability. Well, different people have different views. What I say as an analyst is that the only way in which the reformed Eurozone can be more de democratically accountable is one in which the European Parliament performs at the European level that function of holding um, European institutions to account. And then I, I think you'll be seeing from what I've been saying already where I'm going on the question of the CFSP. Because the CFSP is, in my view, simply an aggregation 
of national foreign policies, there is not really a European level at which the European Parliament can exercise its democratically uh, accountable functions. I think that's a very bad thing, but I would agree with Mike in his description of where it is at the moment. The common foreign and security policy um, has remained entirely as it was in the Maastricht Treaty, um, where essentially um, every government was given a, a, a veto, every government was given an opt-out, the institutions of the European Union were kept at, at arm's length. Now, this is sometimes described as a defence of national sovereignty. Personally, I think it's the, the defence of, of, of governmental sovereignty. Government, people, I mean, it's a hell of a job in a Western democracy, being prime minister or foreign minister or whatever it is. Um, you get many more kicks than sixpence. But one of the things you can do is be photographed going up and down the stairs of aeroplanes, participating in, in press conferences, signing portentous documents, looking grave and reflective with people that everybody's heard of. And, and that's something which I can understand. Politicians are very, very reluctant to give up. And I think, and I'm exaggerating a bit, but I think there is an element, uh, not merely of national sovereignty, but of governmental sovereignty there. And unfortunately, from my point of view, that is the way it's set up. And candidly, I don't regard the CFSP as being the most important thing on the democratic or accountable side as confronting the European Union at the moment. What's much more important is whether we can have a democratically acceptable way of running the Eurozone in future, because that does really seem to me to be a challenge to traditional views of democratic accountability, which traditionally have been exercised at the national and not at the European level. So I don't think there's a, a democratic deficit as far as the CFSP is concerned. Robin quite rightly um, pointed out that there are elements of uh, environmental policy, agricultural policy, development policy, um, where the European Parliament does have a role. And another element in which the European Parliament may try to have a role, which is entirely typical of parliaments throughout the world, is through the budget. Um, you saw that on the um, External Action Service, where the Parliament perfectly understandably attempted to get, as, they, as the Americans say, the camel with its nose in the tent through the budget. Well, that happens all the time in the American system, in every national system. But essentially, if it's CFSP, it isn't a European decision-making process, and therefore the European Parliament's rationale um, is correspondingly limited. The other point I want to make is that the, the thought that in CFSP or anywhere indeed in the European Union's activities, um, it's possible for parliaments corporately to hold anyone to account is, is in my view fantasy. Um, it makes a great deal of sense to have national parliaments looking harder and more thoroughly at national governments. I'm all in favour of that, whether you're talking about the CFSP or whether you're talking about um, uh, late community legislation. But the relationship between national parliaments and their governments is constitutionally, politically, factually so different. And the splits which exist in parliaments um, between uh, the right and the left are quite different from country to country. It's really very difficult indeed to see how these occasional informal meetings can generate a, a political momentum or a political structure that in any serious way um, can hold European policymakers to account. When, when Mike said that he, he, he wanted um, COSAC to be a model, 
Well, um, there are some people who would not regard that as a particularly encouraging model, I have to say. And there are people from a different points on the spectrum. There are different critiques of it. Um, and I think that, that it's very difficult to see how COSAC is anything more than a, a sticking plaster on a non-existent wound, in my view. Um, so I think I've said enough to, to provoke everybody. I think that if anybody's agreed with everything I've been saying, then they probably haven't been paying attention. Um, but I would just say that there's a fundamental difference, I think, between foreign policy and internal policy. Internal policy is something which is structured in the European Union in particular around laws, around the jurisdiction, about predictability. Foreign policy by its nature is, is something rather different, perhaps something with a different moral code. Perhaps it's the difference between a young boy, the, the two young boys, one of whom prays for a bicycle and the other of whom steals a bicycle and prays to God to forgive him. Um, there is a, a certain uh, uh, amorality, I would argue, in foreign policy. Certainly there's the need for decisive action, um, which anyway makes it more difficult as Robin said, to hold um, uh, national governments to account because of needs of secrecy and urgency and the rest of it. When we have a proper European foreign policy, we can confront those questions at the level of the European Parliament. But at, now, but at the moment, sadly, sadly, um, those questions are hopelessly premature. That's my view. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Um, I think it's really great to have this roundtable on parliaments in European common security defense policy making because this is, I think, an important and, and somewhat underestimated dimension of uh, CFSP. Um, what I would like to do is to discuss the role of parliaments mainly with a view to military missions for the simple reason that this is the area I know best, the area I did my, my own research on. It's, it's not a representative area in the sense that it's as close as you can get to the hard core of national sovereignty, I think. And as a consequence, it's also the, the area within European foreign policy which has remained um, most intergovernmental. It has been pointed out by the previous speakers that, well, you do not have um, qualified majority voting as in trade policy or development policy. You, you stick to unanimity. The member states retain a right to, to initiate action, etc. And the supranational institution is somewhat uh, at, the, at the margins. Um, but still, my, my main point would be that I, I do see a democratic deficit emerging even in this, say, extreme case of uh, a highly formally intergovernmental policy area, security and defense um, decision-making. Um, and this is somewhat below the surface of the, the formal decision-making structures, which truly are intergovernmental. Um, but I think what's main, mainly responsible for this creation or the, the emergence of a democratic deficit is the idea that the European Union would be a perfect venue to increase the effectiveness and efficiency of the member states' foreign security defense policies, basically by, by spending scarce resources more effectively. Um, as you might know, um, on paper, the European Union has huge military capabilities, I think almost two, two million troops and, um, of course, all, all kinds of uh, equipment. But whenever it comes to actually finding 
a few thousand troops deployable to a conflict zone and, and finding the, the necessary airlift and air-to-air -air refueling, um, it, it, it quickly becomes clear that, that this is a very scarce resource. So what the Europeans are trying to do is to, to use the institutions of the European Union to, to pool and share scarce resources. And one of the most advanced schemes, I think, is, is the creation of so-called battle groups. So 1,500 troops, multinational units, um, which sort of combine the, the highly specialized, well-trained sort of elite troops of the 27 member states, plus some states who would like to join. And in order to, to have these battle groups, which should be deployable within just a couple of days, in order to have these resources at any moment, member states agreed on a certain roster to have some of them, two of them, at standby at any given time. And for this talk, I, I looked up who is on standby now in case an uh, emergency, a crisis um, happens somewhere around the world. So we would have one led by Greece, and it's, it's composed of Greek, Bulgarian, Romanian, and Cypriotic troops. The other one is a Portuguese, Spanish, French, Italian battle group. Now, these two battle groups are expected to be deployable on behalf of the European Union on the basis of a council decision. And the problem for democratic oversight, democratic control, is that if this decision should ever be taken, it is very, very difficult for any of the national parliaments in these countries to, say, freely deliberate on the pros and cons of a Romanian out-of-area action in, say, Sierra Leone or Syria or Libya or whatever. So there's, there's a, a strange mismatch, I think, between the de facto decree of Europeanization, which involves uh, military planning, and, and the formal compartmentalization of uh, parliamentary control in the member states. And we, we already heard from uh, Lord, Lord Tennyson about the, the various models across member states on overseeing European policies in general. I think the, the, the picture is even more diverse when it comes to the, to the use of force and uh, the yeah, deployment legislation and the question whether parliaments have an ex ante veto power or are simply informed by the government that troops would be sent abroad. Um, it's, I think, roughly half-half of the member states have an ex ante veto power or not. But below this surface, you also have an immense variety of, of exemptions and consultation obligations of the governments, etc. So this is, I think, one reason for this democratic deficit to emerge is that there's simply not a uniform um, level of parliamentary control across the, the member states. Um, I do agree with the... Um, speakers so far that it, it remains the main responsibility of the national parliaments to, to effectively scrutinize, oversee, control uh, the national govern governments in the common foreign security policy. I don't see the European Parliament to replace or to, to take over, to assume responsibilities from the national government anytime soon. Um, I do think that the European Parliament can, can complement national parliaments very well, because the European Parliament has, has a very good privileged access to key European Union decision makers, 
um, the military uh, commanders, etc., etc. And I think the the the, um, the the British Parliament, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons also share this privileged access because the UK is one of the the main powers, one of the most important member states in the European Union, but if you're a parliamentarian in, in one of the uh, smaller member states, it's probably almost impossible to talk directly to Lady Ashton or, say, the commander of one of the EU-led military missions. Um, so this is something for Parliament, the European Parliament um, can add to the interparliamentary cooperation. Um, the other way forward I, I see if, if we would discuss uh, ways to um, mitigate the democratic deficit. I don't think it can be entirely overcome, but I think it can be mitigated. And I'm very happy to hear that there will be some follow-up organization to the dissolved WEU assembly, because I do think that the transnational interparliamentary cooperation is the most promising way forward. And I, I, would, I would think that it's, it, it would be somewhat misleading to um, judge the transnational parliamentary assemblies by their formal power vis-a-vis -vis European executive. So if you would inquire what, what are the, the powers of the national NATO parliamentary assembly or of the former WEU parliamentary assembly or of COSAC, they're almost nil. It's, it's more or less a, a talking shop. Um, that's correct, but I would say that this talking shop is tremendously important because because of this compartmentalized nature of parliamentary control in the nation states. Um, for many parliaments, this is an immensely important forum to gain information on military missions and, of course, foreign security issues um, uh, in general, because for some of these parliamentarians, um, it's very difficult to get uh, information from their own governments and they're simply not, they lack the cloud to have direct access to some of the key decision makers on a European level. So I think this is um, the most promising way forward. I'm also glad to hear that um, the follow-up format considers taking on uh, representatives from the parliaments of, of non-member states, because I saw this as one of the main merits of the former WEU assembly, that it's not only EU member states, but also parliamentarians from, from Turkey, even from the, uh, from the, from the Caucasus, um, from, from various um, associated countries, countries with observer status, who could contribute to a pan-European discourse and deliberation of European security policy. So in some, I'm a bit more skeptical than, than the previous speakers as to the existence of a democratic deficit. I think it is emerging despite the intergovernmental nature of the policy area. But I do think that uh, there's still room for improvement. Mostly it has to do with um, improved cooperation among national parliaments with the European Parliament uh, complementing the work of national parliaments. Thanks. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. We've got, um, we've had several, um, several strong views uh, expressed. I think what I'll do now is open it up uh, to questions from the audience, and um, you can basically choose which uh, you'd like, uh, which kind of questions you'd like. 
to uh, respond to. Do we have any, um, anyone want to go first? Julia. Good evening, Julia Ross, Scott from the International Relations Department and um, doing a PhD here. Um, I think it's really interesting to contrast the statements um, made by Lord Everson and also by um, Mr. Donnelly because um, you, Lord Everson, said that sometimes the momentum of the uh, foreign policy process is quite rapid and requires quick decisions, whereas as far as I can understand, according to you, there is no foreign policy momentum to speak of. So I, I wonder, perhaps, um, if, if you could clarify what you meant or draw examples that might um, maybe counter, counter um, Mr. Donnelly's point. Right. I, well, I, I think probably with slightly different momentums. But what I was what I was particularly talking about is in foreign affairs and particularly in defence. Then, quite often, it will events move rapidly, and so they don't work well in terms of a system where the Council of Ministers uh, communicates a decision through the Foreign Office, which then comes to Parliament, that then meets a week later to decide what to do. Uh, and, and so that makes some of these things that we deal with quite, the sanctions ones are the, the, the obvious ones that I, that I mentioned. But some of the um, missions that, uh, that might happen in certain ways are, aren't, aren't uh, the amount of time you get isn't, isn't that, isn't that uh, great. And I think that is a, uh, in defence and foreign affairs areas, that's just the characteristic of that that area. And in the end of the day, that's what you pay ministers to do. On certain things, they have to just make up their mind, and they have to work in the best interests of Europe or of, of, of the country. And that's that's uh, how how it uh, it works. One thing I will say is there is the contrast in the complete the other way, where Catherine Ashton is high representative will probably try to get a decision on something and it will take endless amount of time and in the end maybe fail. And, and uh, I think uh, in a number of uh, foreign policy uh, initiatives or where there's particularly recently where we've tried to get a single European voice, I think the British government, uh, which I'm a supporter generally, is, uh, has been particularly uh, difficult and wants to see to some degree, a, a relegation of CFSP, to be quite frank. Yes, um, I'm not disputing that there can be occasions in which, within the Council of Ministers, um, particularly the big countries of the European Union, rapidly and coherently and in a coordinated fashion take decisions. What I am denying is that that can properly be described as a European decision-making process. It's simply intergovernmental. It's uh, an arrangement between independent, sovereign, whatever you like to call them, states, which sometimes can come quickly together in case of pressing of sanctions. My distinction is not so much about speed of action or whether there's indeed any momentum, but it's about the European nature of decision-making, and that's relevant to the question of the democratic deficit. Can I just add a point? Um, if you look at what happened with Libya, there was clearly a fundamental political difference between the position taken by the UK and France on one hand and Germany and some others on the other hand, which made it very difficult for a uh, agreed 
EU position to, to come through the Council of Ministers and therefore made, meant that what the EU collectively was doing was not adequate, in my view, for, for the task that needed to be done. And so we ended up whereby we were using NATO assets and some EU countries were participating and a coalition of the willing was brought together. And the Americans didn't want to take the lead role. They wanted Europe to take the lead. But in the end, it was bilateral British-French leadership um, with support of some other states, uh, but, but strongly opposed by the German foreign minister who, who went out of his way to, to make clear that he disagreed uh, in, a, in the most possible public way. Um, and that, for me, is, 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 is a reality. Um, and um, in, in a sense, uh, the Lisbon Treaty was supposed to uh, provide mechanisms uh, whereby we would be more effective. But if there is a fundamental political difference between major European Union countries, then you can't get a, a collective European approach. You have to find other ways. Yeah, if I can also add, um, of course, I think there, there are fundamental differences between foreign policy making and in domestic politics. And we all have heard of, of various directions, regulations, which have been under negotiations in Brussels for 10, 12, 15 years. And this is, of course, a cumbersome legislative process that allows for a lot of deliberation of parliament on all kinds of levels. And things move, move faster in foreign policy. At the same time, I also think things have changed since the end of the Cold War, because the, the, the prime scenario is no longer a surprise attack by the Soviet Union. But it's rather what's, I think, correctly called wars of choice. So you have crisis simmering, escalating, and you have um, usually a couple of, of weeks, if not months, in preparation of um, a, a possible military involvement. And in, in some of the main military missions uh, which are still going on, Iraq or Afghanistan, have been in, in the open and transparent for many, many months. So I, I would argue that in contrast to homeland defense, this opens up perfect opportunities also for parliamentary involvement and there's no real trade-off between the, the openness, um, the transparency of deliberation that comes with parliamentary discussions and the, the, the alleged uh, requirements of, of secrecy, surprise, that, that the military sometimes claims for itself. Very briefly, that um, an advantage from my point of view of the community method is that it, it provides an incentive for agreement to be arrived at. Um, one of the criticisms I have of the Lisbon Treaty, as far as CFSP is concerned, is it, it doesn't provide those mechanisms to make it easier to agree. Other than perhaps through the External Action Service. It may be that when the External Action Service is working properly, that um, they will be a, a mechanism of, of consensus building. But I think we're going to have to wait quite a long time for that. Okay. Hello, um, my name is Nara Pazer and I'm a lecturer in Brunel uh, University Law School and I'm interested in European neighborhood policy, in particular the democratic aspects. So it was interesting to hear about the unreality of foreign policy. And um, I spent three years of my life trying to understand whether the EU is any different from other political actors. <laughs> um, and it was very hard to spot any differences when it came to practice. But because of the Lisbon Treaty, the values of uh, the EU are already spelled out and their promotion is one of the official objectives in foreign policy. Um, my question relates to the role of the Parliament, because leaving it on a marginal side, um, kind of allows the rest of the EU to work in this moral way in terms of 
following the um, strategic or their real, real political interests. Um, because the, the problem sometimes comes in as a reminder just as to what uh, the normative uh, stance of the EU should be. So do you think uh, allowing the parliament to have this marginal role affects ultimately this uh, striving of the EU to become a normative actor? In particular, it's in its neighborhood because this was one of the objectives of the EAP, which doesn't really work. I mean, in sort of in other words, if, the, if there was stronger parliamentary input, would we have a more moral foreign policy? I think is. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I'll be very blunt. <laughs> I think you would have a, a, a dispute between some national parliaments and European parliaments and an exchange of very strong language and people from national parliaments would say what's the point of this organisation that pontificates but ultimately we have to uh, justify the action on the doorstep. Um, if for example, if I take an example, the current one really, um, if there was a, 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 an attempt by the European Parliament to say that there should be military action uh, in Syria, uh, I can't see that um, national parliaments uh, in a number of countries that would have to provide the military forces to do that uh, would, would, would take kindly to that. Um, in some countries they might be more sympathetic, but ultimately um, if um, members of the European Parliament from countries that don't have significant military forces start trying to tell those countries that do have and would have to be deploying their young men and women into that conflict with all the consequences, I think that would have a very difficult political relationship following from it. Can I just say it's a self-reinforcing system, of course, what Mike's described, but, but uh, since the European Parliament has no powers in this matter, then it's easy to present it as being a, an interfering outside body. Um, now, the system is as it is that the European Parliament doesn't have those powers, but your question in a way is like saying that if my grandmother had been a man, she'd have been my grandfather. Um, for the European Parliament to have uh, a sort of role that you, you might think is a, a desirable one, that you might think is desirable, you need to have a completely different system. And I can't see any, any chance of that in the CFSP area in, in the foreseeable future. I, I actually don't agree with either of that. I don't think it works like that in reality. Because politics is far more flexible and has to be more malleable than that. The one thing the European Parliament, I think the European Parliament should be involved in this area, it is involved in this area, it has a, a, for, a, a quite a powerful foreign affairs committee, it has a, a subcommittee which looks at defence, uh, and frankly, a way in which that, that Parliament is able through uh, its various interactions with the High Representative, whether in her role as uh, uh, Vice President of the Commission rather than High Representative, they, uh, they effectively call the EAS to account uh, more than national parliaments can actually do. And I see it as their uh, almost moral authority or duty to do that, because they are the only people that are able to do that, given the fact that we have a uh, technically a single cameral unicameral system in the European Parliament, which is it's really a, a, a dual cameral, but the, 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 the other half of it, which is the Council of Ministers, is completely opaque. So, so in a way, the European Parliament does have a strong role, because I, one is I do believe there should be a European foreign policy. It should, it should actually fundamentally be intergovernmental, because I think otherwise 
you, you, you move to, to a unitary state at that, you do move to a unitary state at that point. Um, and, but it, but, so, it, so Parliament does have a role in trying to get coherence, putting pressure on, because there's also um, enlargement, which is probably the most effective bit of European foreign policy, is, is still uh, community-driven and effectively, although at the end of the day it has to be uh, agreed uh, unanimously uh, by treaty by, by, by member states. But, and, and also the European Parliament effectively has got itself into a position where it, has, it can effectively um, put, put through um, Cathy Ashton through uh, hearings in terms of uh, uh, before she could take up the appointment. Right, it might be technically in terms of her commission role, but effectively they can say one way or the other. So I think the European Parliament should have a, a, a great role. It, in fact, the, 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 um, the arrangement that we're trying to reach which I agree with Brendan is completely ineffective in terms of a real accountability, but it's important all the same. Uh, national parliaments aren't saying exclude the European Parliament. We want them there. We're, we're, we're part of that democratic process in, in, in the greater Europe. All, we're, all, all the national parliaments are saying is they are one delegation. They are not half of that, of, 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 of that body. So, yeah. So I don't think, I, although Brendan is technically correct, I don't think it really works that way. And we need the European Parliament, even within the current system, to get accountability at that, at that higher level, in addition to national parliaments. No, I'll, I'll wait till later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just, just briefly, maybe, I think that the more powerful the European Parliament becomes, the more it also comes under the, the typical pressure of all kinds of, of, of lobbying groups that you would otherwise find lobbying the Commission and, and the Council and the, the individual national governments. Um, still, I think that there, there are a couple of interesting exemptions, such as the European Parliament um, blocking or vetoing the, the uh, SWIFT arrangement of the, the treaty that the European Council or Commission has concluded with the United States on the exchange of personal data for the purpose of, of anti-terrorism, etc. So, so there you could see the, the European Parliament um, that, that just had acquired the veto power over these negotiations. Um, to actually assume this role and, and, and force the member states to, to renegotiate um, the treaty more favorable to the protection of, of individual rights. So you still do have these um, exceptions where you can see that the European Parliament, for some reason, feels obliged to, 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 to actually act on the, on the self-understanding of, of being a, a driving force of, of democracy promotion and, and protection of civil rights, um, civil power, maybe? I mean, the, I, would, I would add on, on one disappointing thing from the European Parliament has been um, it may talk a lot about wanting to use the human rights clauses and apply the human rights clauses in international agreements, but when it comes down to a vote on, say, whether or not we should have an agreement with Kazakhstan or you know, whatever other, you know, despicable <laughs> dictatorship around the world, it rarely does actually exercise um, its, its own leverage. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it has occasionally done this, but it's been quite incoherent, I think. So I think on that, from that respect, it, it, certainly the European Parliament could do more, you know, simply in terms of being much more consistent in the way that it holds. But the big exception to that, of course, is enlargement, yeah. where which is the biggest way he's absolutely totally insisted that all those areas, the only way that ex-Soviet states have become members yeah. 
or an ex-communist states have become members of the European Union is by, uh, going, by all those Copenhagen criteria being very strongly enforced. They weren't quite enough, maybe, in terms of Romania and Bulgaria, in terms of rule of law before they got there. And Cyprus is a different issue. Yeah. I don't know. Cyprus... Sorry, I don't want to get tired. Well, <laughs> no, Cyprus, is, Cyprus is a whole different issue yeah. of problems, but, yeah. but that is not one. Well, just to add to that, we yeah. just um, had a debate in the House of Commons uh, 10 days, two weeks ago, on the um, uh, issues relating to the judiciary and the fundamental rights uh, clauses to do with Croatia. Mm. And the point that came through very strongly, Croatia is being expected to meet much higher standards than applied in the case of Bulgaria and Romania. And that is perhaps because lessons were learned. Yeah. Um, and it's not particularly fair on the Croatians, but nevertheless, uh, uh, it, it, it does mean that the European Union uh, is saying very clearly uh, that, that you, to become a member state of the EU, you have got to not just say you're dealing with corruption, you have to have actually dealt with corruption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm Monica Elmeyer, I'm doing my PhD here at the IR department and my question is related to the aspect put forward by Wolfgang Wagner. I was just wondering, you said um, you would see an let's say, emerging democratic deficit due to the limited capacity of national parliaments to control multinational troops in the form of EU bell groups. Um, and I was wondering, because as far as I know, um, the EU has made any use of the EU bell groups so far. So, <laughs> and I was wondering whether you see a causal link between the limited capacity of national parliaments to control this group and the hesitance uh, on the side of EU governments to use actually or make use of EU bell groups. Yeah, I definitely see a link, and I think I think it's a trade-off. So you, the, the system is designed to make the most effective use of these scarce resources, and it, it would require that at any given time the governments act on behalf of the European Union and, and not on behalf of their, however defined, national interests. And the, the reason why this never really came into action, I think, is because it has been a step too far, because if well, one of the uh, crises when the use of battle groups was discussed was the one in, in, in Congo, I think 2008 or nine. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And I think it was a French-German battle group on standby, and the French heavily pushed for, for having it deployed, and then the Germans were hesitant. And it, 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 it illustrated this trade-off that you, you either um, skip all concerns you have about having the Bundeswehr deployed in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and there was no majority for that in, in, in the Bundestag, or you, or you risk the, um, the functioning of the entire scheme of allocating or making efficient use of, of scarce resources. So it's in this, this strange limbo now that you do have this row stand, and, and they're all trained and, and on standby, stand down, etc. But um, you, you're perfectly right so far, they haven't been, been used. And, um, I think it, it indicates that it, it's simply not yet the case that the individual governments slash their parliaments are prepared to simply dedicate the resources for a, a joint decision made in the, in the Council. Can I comment on that? Because um, 
we've had uh, a, a parallel problem where forces have been deployed under the NATO um, hat, uh, where there was always the national caveats, which meant that in, in, in Bosnia and in Kosovo, um, the commanders sometimes discovered that they could, for example, um, have a, put, put a security ring around a, an area but uh, then if the people started to escape, some of the national uh, soldiers there didn't have a, a, an approval to use their weaponry uh, in certain circumstances, and consequently the point of having the security ring was completely pointless. Um, and that was because they needed clearance from their, their military commanders back in their capital city before they, they were able to take any military action, which of course defeated the whole point of having a multinational force working there. That, that was a constant problem for the British military because we, we, we didn't have any national caveats but certainly a number of our NATO partners did um, and, and so if you do deploy, even if you get the agreement to deploy, you might still have a problem if you've then got national caveats uh, about how under what circumstances, if it's a multinational force, you've got to give up uh, otherwise, it's not effective. Uh, the, the the national veto or the national control. I thought you were in favour of national caveat. No, no, not at all. No, 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 no. I'm in favour of intergovernmentalism. What I'm not in favour of is is a fantasy that the European Parliament is the body to do it. What I would believe is that national parliaments should keep the accountability of their defence ministers, but you also have to agree, if you're in an organisation, as we are in NATO, for example, and as we should be if we develop the European Common Defence Policy, that, that, that you give up that veto, or you, you define in advance what the, your, your forces can do, and then you say, that's fine, you go ahead, and then you allow the commanders to make the judgments in the circumstances. You don't have to have reference back which is the problem we had even with the ISAF and NATO and K4 forces and, 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 and what became the, 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 the forces in Bosnia as well. There's been a, a history of 10 years of those kind of difficulties. But I think on, on battle groups it's not as straightforward as that. There was a huge wish by the Nordic battle group to, do, to deploy itself in, I think, Chad. And they wanted to go, but they couldn't, and so there wasn't any problem in terms of uh, military deliverability, but in the end, um, it was decided. I can't remember what happened on it, but obviously it didn't. It didn't get deployed, and it, it didn't go. But that battle group, because the Nordic countries are able are um, centred on Sweden, are have two things. One is they have long-term pooling and sharing and ability, similar military doctrines, used to work to each other, so you could actually deploy, and probably even although Sweden is. Not, you know, a neutral country in terms of NATO or whatever, then I, I suspect that the Swedish forces, they're also willing to uh, fire, fire bullets at people, which uh, probably a significant proportion of EU member states' military forces are not. Uh, it's a major, major issue. A major issue. And that's why, in terms of... people coming up to be shot by the EU? Well... I, that, that was, well, one of the, well, in fact, if you come back to the Congo, as, I mean, if I get this right, then there was a European deployment. It was not a battle group, but it, there was a major military deployment, a very major military deployment. And recently I asked the, um, one of the commanders that was in charge of that, well, okay, it, that was a very difficult situation. Uh, it was potentially a bit like, uh, if you like, the Balkans were. And so this, one of the questions one asks is, well, if it came to it, 
would that group have actually um, fired bullets in terms of defending those civil populations they were there to defend? And interestingly, the answer I was looking at to come back, but actually, the answer that came back was, well, actually, they were the same units that had worked together in Afghanistan, and they were very willing to, uh, to actually take action to, to protect those civilian uh, for uh, those civilian populations if, if necessary. So I thought that was, that was quite good. The other about, but the big area about battle groups is that the, uh, we know in, in defense, Europe has more uh, people in uniform than the United States, but its deployable forces are derived from it. And, uh, and so if, you're, if you actually try to deploy it within a short period of time, it's very, very difficult. The other thing about battle groups is they, uh, although you have certain ones like Nordic, which is more stable, in other ones, they move around. They, so how, how do you actually train and work together? They self-certify, so it's, it's, it's not like NATO is a different way of checking that similar bodies are actually there and ready to go. That, that doesn't happen. And the other area in, in, in Europe is that for, if say we have a Greek battle group at the moment, as you said, what happens if we want to deploy that group? It is paid for by the member states that actually deploys the military thing. Can Greece afford to do that at the present moment? Absolutely not. And there is, there is a great, this, this problem over, there is not a community budget in terms of uh, the defence area, so you take your own costs. And a lot of small countries, if you actually deploy it militarily, that's a huge, you probably double your defence budget. And at the moment, you can't afford to do that. So there's all those sort of other issues. But at the end of the day, if you don't use them, you, you will lose them. And I, I think in terms of the uh, fundamental core mission of, 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 uh, of European uh, Union in terms of crisis management, uh, there's all sorts of roles that, that Europe could play that NATO it would not be right to, to, to play or what NATO would not want to do in terms of small forces that are there can be deployed and can actually uh, deliver, and, and, and you, it'd be a real shame if we lost that capability. Say <coughs> something about ESDP, um, or two things really. Robin talked about um, uh, becoming a unitary state. Uh, I think that discussion, which, which is very relevant to ESDP, um, implies that there is one thing which is unambiguously a nation state, and another thing which isn't. And at some point, the European Union may or may not cross that threshold. I don't see it that way. I think that, that There's a whole gray area in well, between. Well, I'm just saying, you get to one end of the spectrum when well, you have a unified yeah, foreign policy. No, I don't believe that with a unified foreign policy. With a defense policy, yes. But I, what I'd say is that there's already quite a lot of common, well, let me say why I do divide the two. Common foreign and security policy um, impinging on a great deal on trade, on environment, on development, on agricultural policy, which are all areas in which there's more or less in the way of community Sure. But, but what classically happens, Brendan, when all foreign policy fails, what's the next step? Well, I hope, and this is my next point, that the European Union um, will be much more reluctant to use military force than any comparable organisation previously. 
And one of the things that rather, rather worries me about some of the talk on ESDP is that there's a certain machismo about it, that the European Union needs to have its battle groups and it needs to have this and it's going to be able to rival the Americans. You hear all these stories about uh, the Americans spend so much on, on, on defence and the British and the Europeans. We just expect to look after our own backyard, don't we? I mean, that's the ignominy of, 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 the, of the Balkans. And look at Libya. What, what happened in well, Libya was that Britain and France took the lead, but actually it wouldn't have been possible to succeed without the American uh, military hardware and support that came in behind it. And that showed that European countries were not able today, across the other side of the Mediterranean, to intervene in a humanitarian way to save hundreds of thousands of lives on their own without the United States in the background. And that is a real issue. It's not a question of us replacing the Americans. The US will still remain the global military power, spending vastly more than all the Europeans added together. But nevertheless, I mean, 70% of the total NATO military spending is American. And it's gone up. It used to be 50%. It's now 70%. And at the rate that defence spending is going at the moment, it will probably be 80% relatively soon. And, and, and that is the reality. We're not talking about competing, replacing the Americans, but we should be able to deal with our own area, our own neighbourhood. If, if a conflict breaks out again in Bosnia, which is possible. If things go bad in Mitrovica and we end up with something very bad in, 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 in Kosovo uh, and in Ser with Serbia, then somehow or other we've got to find a way to intervene there to stop it. And I think it, it's a real question, do we have either the political will or two, the ability and resources to do it? Well, let me take the question of Libya. France and Britain made a decision that they were going to uh, act in the way that they did. A lot of other European countries didn't agree with that. Now, you may say they were wrong, but it, it was a different political analysis. It was half and half. Well, yes, that, that sounded to me like rather divided European yeah, Union. I'm not denying it. I said yeah. that earlier, but so what? Well, what I mean is, is that I'm not in favour of saying that the European Union has to go in one direction or the, or the other, that the only authentic choice happens to be the British so, and French. So you would want the other half to be able to veto Britain and no, France no, because there's no what agreement I'm, in what, Europe? What I'm saying is that there's no possibility of a European policy when there's such a division. Well, and I wouldn't regard it as being um, the most important thing for Europe to agree on, whether it can engage in military missions. It's not, it's not the most important, but it is part of the spectrum of things we have I to do. One that's a long way down the spectrum of urgency from, say, sorting out the Europe. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. and of, course, of, course, of course that's the case, but, but what, you, what perhaps you've got in, in Libya was yeah, impossible without the United States uh, and its capabilities, but what perhaps you actually got was, uh, and I can't see, and maybe the situation will never arise again uh, in the way that in the context that there was, but you did at least have um, European powers with the help of others starting to look after, or being shown that they could, to some degree, start to look after affairs in, the, in their own neighbourhood. Now that clearly was completely, you had the, Germany staying in the United Nations Security Council, you had other people that were completely against, but what to me that does is it starts to build up at least an understanding and expectation that Europe can act, and maybe because that happened to be 
as far as we can see, in terms of military action, is successful. We'll see what happens on the rest of history. But, but then that gives confidence that at least that Europe can start to act again. And that will be um, the slow progress, probably, of, of, of Europe of muddling through. But I think that does actually give a, a, a possible foundation for hope for the future. And yes, we all hope that military force never needs to be used, but uh, that is something that, regrettably, is, I've, I've learned to be uh, naive. And I think we have a real... EU has a, a real potential humanitarian role in terms of crisis management and the, and the various Petersburg tasks that, uh, that are listed there of actually being able to achieve. Yes, but Libya went well beyond the Petersburg task. Yeah, it did. No, yeah. It had to. Well, it had to in your assessment, which I might or might not agree with. I'm just making the point that, that I, I don't myself think that the focus on the idea that the European Union is only to be taken seriously because of its military hardware is, um, is, is about the judgment I come. No, it won't be taken at all seriously unless it sorts out the Eurozone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So unbelievably to me, I, the last time I looked at the, at the clock, it was about half an hour ago, and suddenly all of this time went by, but we have to um, actually vacate the room by eight. I'm sorry. Um, that's, no, I think it was excellent to end on quite a good dispute there about yeah. uh, sort of the future path of the European well, Union and the role of military you, forces. You noticed that the, 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 the government and the opposition were in broad Completely agreement. <laughs> And complete agreement also sort of on having a strong global Europe. Well, that that is yeah. quite, quite impressive. Anyway, I'd like very much to thank you all uh, for participating in the roundtable. Very uh, good and lively, as, as we like at the LSC. Um, if you could all just thank uh, the, our panelists. Thank you very much for coming.